RPG lessons learned. When the game is over, when your players are gone, that's when lessons are learned. We are at RPG LL Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, RPGLLPodcast at gmail.com, and check us out online at RPGLessonsLearned.com. Hi, welcome to RPG Lessons Learned, the show where you can learn from our mistakes. And with me today is Mike. Hey, Dusty. Hey, Mike. And then sort of in the background, staying on mute and making sure we don't mess up the actual digital slash audio slash recording side of this is Brian. I'm muted. <laughs> um, <laughs> Brian wasn't actually able to play in this session um, last year, so he will be abstaining from most commentary, though he, uh, good fellow that he is, is monitoring our audio levels. So sound engineer Brian today rather than co-host Brian. So today we're talking about a show from our or a show and a session from our Pathfinder campaign. It was actually our tenth of seventeen sessions, and I'm proud to say this is about the point in the campaign where I realized that things had gotten a little bloated in the middle. We'd had a couple of you know bloaty sessions in a row that weren't going anywhere, and I started trying to turn that around with much tighter, um, more focused sessions. And this was the first attempt at a tighter, more focused session. And uh, the basic plot of this was, uh, hey, remember those dwarves from a few sessions ago that were selling dark artifacts to, to local youth? Um, yes. The, it turns out some of those local <laughs> youth have been kidnapped. And uh, you, gotta, you have to find these scions of Sandpoint, so to speak, these sons and daughters of, of prominent um, Sandpoint families, and, and rescue kids. Hey, rescuing kids, always a powerful D&D plot device. So at the very beginning of the session, Mike, if you'll recall, we, we forgot to roll treasure at the end of the previous session. At the end of the session where you guys beat the dwarves on the docks, um, the evil dwarves, I should say, and uh, we you that was a lot of treasure. Those yep. dwarves had a lot of treasure on them, and there was treasure on the ship, and we rolled treasure for like 45 minutes. Annoying or rewarding? I'm going to say annoying, because wasn't this the session that inspired you to create the treasure roller that's on your website now? Yes, it was. As we walked away, I was like, there's got to be a better way to do this. I... I Tell me how you feel, Mike, but I enjoy the random aspect of... I love that part. Yeah. But I hate, I hated the mechanics of having to roll and then re-roll and then roll and then re-roll. Yeah. So, so depending on where you hit in the chart to kind of you know give a little info for listeners, depending on where you hit in the chart, you could wind up having to make two or three successive rolls depending on what category your original roll original role fell in and that did get kind of annoying especially when you did have a lot of treasure to go through yeah you could wind up making four or five rolls because you could roll a major treasure and the major treasure percentage that you land on says roll two minor treasures yep. and then you roll a minor treasure and it says okay roll a scroll and then okay it just it, it was a lot or hey roll a weapon okay now roll what type of weapon okay now roll the enchantment there's just a lot of rolls in a row a lot of percentile rolls one after another to result in treasure and to actually adjudicate the treasure and, and get the random stuff 
Yep. It, it's really beneficial that it, it frees your DM from having to spend a lot of time thinking and assigning treasure pregame. So it frees up uh, frees up uh, DM time there. But then when you kind of get into that rabbit hole, the, when you're, you're then wasting the group's time, which is kind of as we've spoken in, in previous sessions, that seems to be a, a pretty bad thing because, you know, wasting time keeps people from coming back. Um, so, yeah, you're... Uh, your treasure roller that you created automated that beautifully. Let's spend a minute on random treasure in general, Mike, because we, we haven't really addressed that when we're talking about this Pathfinder campaign. So you say you like it. I I liked it sometimes. I liked it because it forced me to incorporate items that I wouldn't ordinarily incorporate. It forced yep. me to think about how you guys might use an elemental stone. Um, but I didn't like it because you could roll a scroll of fly and then, you <laughs> and know, then, on the very then, next roll, you get another scroll of fly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that is kind of a part of it. I, and I haven't done random treasure in other platforms, but I'm wondering if, if Pathfinders may be a little more narrow on the random treasure. Because some of those tables did seem pretty tight, right? Specifically on the uh, the weapons. Yeah, and I should say for those listening at home, we were using only the random treasure tables in the Pathfinder beginner box in in the GM's guide. That 64-page GM booklet, that's where we rolled our treasure from. So, uh, Pathfinder the core rulebook probably has some of the treasure rollers or certainly the GM rulebooks, not those, just the one from the beginner box. And and yep. to be fair, Mike, there's probably just less stuff on that one. But I don't know that having a more expansive set of tables would really solve the problem because then talk about hitting a lot of different tables on your rolls. Yeah, that's a good point. You just go deeper down the rabbit hole at that point. Yeah, so making it more expansive actually makes it just take longer. So yep. you're right. This this I walked out of the session saying, Okay, I like random treasure. I don't like physically rolling it with physical dice. I am going to make something. So I, I made a JavaScript-based page. You can go to dustinian.com, D-U-S-T-I-N-I-A-N.com, and you can find the Pathfinder Beginner Box Treasure Roller. And we started rolling treasure at every session after this with the push of a button. This seems to fall in a category we keep coming back into is the uh, the opportunity with all RPGs across the board to uh, to have more offerings in a in a digital sphere to make running the games a little bit easier. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised that we still haven't seen a good digital-first tabletop RPG. A tabletop RPG that's really meant to be played. You know, you can make a character on your phone, you can roll your dice on your phone, you can easily share your character sheet from your phone. And and, and hey, maybe the, the, the Dungeon Plus or the Dragon Plus, whatever it is, the D&D Beyond, maybe that has it. I haven't invested in D&D Beyond. I'm one of those guys that's like, well, I already paid for the books. I'm not going to... Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but even then, it, I still can't call it digital first because yep. the, the books came out first, and it's really meant to be, you know, played on paper with a paper character sheet. A, a digital first RPG would just it would slay, it would kill, it would take the market. It would. Maybe, maybe we should make one. You know, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that adventure. You know, it had an investigation phase. It had, you know, a combat at the end. Um, the investigation had, you know, three places you could go. I really walked you through the adventure. Did you mind the rail? No, I uh, I thought it was a refreshing change because the last few games we had played, I think we'd been pretty hot and heavy on the character-driven storyline. So we had a lot of 
meandering adventures where uh, where some of them had trouble getting getting beyond the character driven part into the actual adventure part. So I think it was actually kind of a nice tra- uh, nice change to be to be led by the nose just a little bit. So the investigation portion where you spoke to the various families and looked around the kids' rooms and looked around outside and did all your climbing and sneaking and looking, was that interesting and fun and uncovered more information, or was it just lengthy and boring? You know, it's been a long time since we played this game, so I'm having trouble remembering how I felt at the time. I don't remember this being a bad game but I also don't remember it being a terrible game. Um, so it wasn't bad or terrible. Yeah. It, it, I'm going to say, oh, sorry, <laughs> for being a great, being a great game. <laughs> so I, I don't have much of an impression in my mind on this game. I'm going to say the biggest thing that I remember about this game, and we'll probably talk about this here in a little bit, is the, uh, the, the crit at the end. On uh, on basically the uh, the boss of this adventure. Yeah, let's skip to that. So Chris playing Valeros the fighter, you know, rolled a twenty. You know, he rolled a crit, and then in Pathfinder, just like D anD D three point five, you confirm your crits. So if you roll a twenty and you get a crit, okay, you're going to hit. You're absolutely going to hit from that point forward. But you roll again on your D twenty, and you're not trying to get another twenty. You're just trying to hit the creature's AC, and if you do that, you confirm your critical. So if you if you hit the first 20, but then you don't roll the character's DC, or sorry, AC, on the second roll, then hey, no big deal, you still hit. You roll normal damage. If you hit the 20, and then you managed on your second D20 roll to hit the AC, then awesome, you crit, you do double damage. Well, Chris, we had said, we, we had you know, created the house rule at our table to say, okay, if you roll a 20 and then you roll another 20 to confirm your crit, whatever you just rolled it on is dead. But I warned you guys, I said, this goes for the monsters too. If or they for hit us. You, yeah. If they hit you with a 20 and they hit you with another 20, that's it. You're done. And you guys were like, yeah, sure. That sounds, you know, like, like combat would actually be a lucky, a lucky strike could, could take anyone out at any moment. Well, Chris, you know, after exchanging maybe... Actually, it was very early on in the fight because Nathan's character, Merciel, hadn't even gotten in position yet. And Chris rolls a 20. Yep. And then he rolls another 20. And I'm like, okay, well, you kill the hag. You, who who was the main villain of this entire thing? She was the one that had taken the kids. She was the one that was being slowly reawakened by the town's undead coming back to life. Um, she was the one taking revenge for her fallen god from, from years ago when, when that... God's religion was ousted from a standpoint. So he just took her out, just like that. I mean, snap of a fingers, combat's done, she's out. And and I'm not sure still, Mike, how I feel about that. We had set up the consequences for a, for a, for two 20s in a row. Yep. And we stuck to them. And I feel good about that. But after this long investigation, combat was kind of a finger snap. What do you think? Uh I don't know. I mean, I think you, you, you got to let the dice do what the dice do, right? And since we house ruled it, the only thing we could possibly do was play it out. So I think to do anything outside of that would have been disingenuous, right? So even if we let the Chris, the, the, the crit go and, and she had died, then having some, you know, 
uh, MacGuffin pop up after that just to, just to put combat into it. I think that would have been absolutely disingenuous. And I think we probably would have seen through that. So I'm going to say, overall, I don't think it took away from the adventure. Um, so I think it was the right call just to, to, to let it be what it was. Yeah, I always have the moment where I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, man, this is this boss kill is anticlimactic. And I'm like, you know, I could take this hag pawn and say, okay, you kill this hag. But but then there's another, the real hag. Yeah, out of the woods from, you know, from out of the woods behind you comes the real hag. And she screams, no, my sister. And, and now you're in combat again. I think it would have been transparent. I think you guys yeah. would have seen right through that. We would have. I, I think the other thing too is is in the moment it was uh, it was actually kind of a triumphant feeling, right? Because we were short a man, we were we were down Ezrin, and um, something had happened to put into our mind that this was going to be a really tough encounter. It might have been all the times so the previous games of saying, "I really need something to challenge you. I really need something to challenge you," and we thought this was going to be the challenge, and with the with the double crit being not a challenge i think that was uh that was kind of relief off of us of of not having to 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 risk a party wipe yeah and i knew i was gonna let it stand too because you're right as soon as that second 20 was rolled and we had all discussed you know sessions before what that meant the cheer that went up around the table i mean literal fist pumping literal cheers literal yeah like like shouts of excitement from the three of you guys yeah, um, I, I I couldn't take that away from you guys. Yeah, I, I think it was ultimately it was the right call. Maybe it been a little anticlimactic. Maybe we we didn't get to see some of the cool things that this this character had or that this this NPC had in store for us. But uh, yeah, I think it was the right call. And again, part of the charm of RPGs to me is that you don't always get the traditional three act story. You don't always get the beginning, middle, and end. You don't always get you know the the you got to try. You know, the rule of three in, in mythology, right? We've got to try three solutions before you win or, you know, a certain number of trials or whatever. You don't always get that. Sometimes you just freaking kill the bad guy. And that spontaneity, that, um, what's the word I'm looking for? We just genre bending, genre breaking freedom to tell a story that may not make a great novel, but it sure was a fun session is what makes D&D for me. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about this is me dropping some, uh, call it GM advice, call it a GM trick. Mike, you guys realized at some point, probably three quarters of the way through the adventure, that I had completely stolen this plot whole cloth from a classic horror movie. Do you remember what triggered you realizing that? I think it was going to be as soon as we realized that the kids who were kidnapped were the kids of the people who had killed or, you know, uh, suppressed whatever sealed this hag, you know, from previous generations. I think that was the primary trigger there. I can't remember if we actually got into anything about dreams or sleep, but I, I think it would have been at that. Yeah, there was some stuff about as you interviewed. So I, I was super proud. I'm bummed that you don't remember it. I was super proud of the investigation. The three kids that you looked into, searching their rooms, searching around, finding the claw marks on the outside of the second story window, some of the mysterious clues from, from the you know various staff of these mansions, the butler, 
you know, so to speak, the the ladies made that talked about you know the kids having nightmares and stuff. I stole the plot of Nightmare on Elm Street, and I let you guys slowly uncover that and slowly realize that um, it was really. It, I didn't have a ton of prep time. I wanted a great adventure. I wanted a tight plot. I wanted to have a very clear story framework in my head of what the villain was up to and how and why. That way, no matter what you asked me, whether I'd prepped for it or not, I would have a good answer. And that came in super handy during the investigation. I was able to give you know clues just by having you say, well, look at the window. Oh, there's a scratch mark. You don't even roll. There are clearly in this in this aged wood of the windowsill, very clearly fresh scratches made by claws or something that you know climbed up this roof and pulled this kid out this window. Um, I, I just love the idea of the really you know tight plot stolen from a movie. So I stole a plot from a movie because hey, we're never gonna we didn't record that that session. We're not going to release it. It's not plagiarism if it doesn't go anywhere, if I don't, if I don't reproduce it. Um, it's not plagiarism if it's just at my table and then thrown away and, and forgotten about. So I felt really uh, good about doing that and the amount of prep that it saved me. Did it cheapen the game for you, Mike, when you realized that I had completely stolen Nightmare on Elm Street? No, not at all. I, I, I think uh, I think that is a tool that DMs can go into, especially when they're, they're pressed for time and trying to get a game out. I, I don't have any problem with DMs borrowing from elements of, of pop culture anywhere, right? Be it be it political, be it movies, books, whatever. I, I think all all things are fair in in DMing, especially if you're not, you know, releasing the content or, or monetizing the content. I, I have gotten better at trying to do it in a way where you never figure out what movie it's from. In yeah. fact, uh, not not it doesn't continue to this day. But for a while there in our Pathfinder campaign, the running joke was you guys would, you know, we'd finish a session and you guys would say, okay. Yeah. Which movie mo- was this? <laughs> what movie was this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I got to where I started to trick you guys or to make it less obvious what I was stealing. I would actually just take two movies that I liked and I would take, I would say, okay, you know, this is kind of, I'm making stuff up, you know, Smokey and the Bandit meets Robocop. I want to play that game. <laughs> <laughs> and I have clear answers for everything that happens. You, you say Smokey and the Bandit meets Robocop, and that conjures clear images of, of a lot of interesting stuff you can do that, that would be kind of a gonzo game. But if you want to take it a more serious route, you just choose two serious movies or, or, or plays or books or novels or whatever it is that you're familiar with that you can draw from to enrich your table. And, you know, stealing the overall plot and the overall characters frees you up to be creative with the descriptions. But more importantly, it frees you up. I had total confidence in knowing the plot of Nightmare on Elm Street. So I felt completely free to really look at you guys and make eye contact and listen, really listen every time you talked about what your character was doing so that I could respond to it. I I wasn't sitting there watching you talk but not listening and desperately trying to think of the next plot device i didn't have to do that so i could react to you and you know being less creative on my side and stealing stuff lets me enable you to be more creative and i felt so good about that discovery 
Yeah, and I think to a further point, I think for any uh, any GMs or would be GMs who are listening and thinking, "Oh man, that's wrong. I would I would never steal someone else's idea. I would never steal someone else's content." Um, I first caution to say, you know, don't think it was stealing content. Basically, you're repurposing ideas, and even if you don't want to go as far as stealing actual characters and and plot points and even dialogue, the the best thing you can also do is just think about the themes, think about the tropes of content you already know of, of things that are familiar, not only to yourselves or to your players. I, I think if you can, I think if you can kind of repeat those common themes in your games, I think that builds a lot of engagement with your audience because they, they can get easier to what you're, what you're laying down. If it's something kind of, kind of familiar and already exists in, uh, in, in, in mainstream and other places. And I'll say too, I, I kept saying, steal the plot, steal the plot. I should really say, steal the setup. Because yeah. I stole the setup from Nightmare on Elm Street, and I, I made Freddy, you know, a, a woman, and I, and I made her a, a dead, avenging paladin, which is why she turned into a hag, yada, yada, yada. It was, it, they were very slight changes to the backstory, but I really only stole Freddy and the setup. Yeah. From there on, it became sort of like fan fiction. It's, it's like you guys, it's like if I asked you guys, okay, how would you take out Freddy? So from the moment the game starts and the players get involved, the plot is, is changed. The, the, the game didn't develop anything like the movie Nightmare on Elm Street. It just had the same setup and the same antagonist. Yep. All right. I think, uh, I think that's this episode. So lessons I learned. Um, random treasure is fun, can be fun. Maybe it's not for you. It, we, we really were in a phase where we wanted random treasure because it challenged us to include things in our games that we weren't including before. In the fourth edition, when I was architecting all the treasure, you know, you, you found your plus one weapon, you found your plus one armor. Then next week, someone else found their plus one weapon and armor. And I was just trying to keep you guys in the right power space to be able to be effective against monsters. And that was a lot of work. So eschewing that, you know, and doing random treasure was fun, and it forced me to be creative about treasures that I wouldn't ordinarily have given you. Once you had a scroll of fly, it's like, oh, crap, how can they solve the next adventure by flying, and how can I think about that or enable that or deal with that? So it, it forced some creativity. I really enjoyed that, but I didn't care for the time that we spent on it. So I actually automated rolling for, for later games. So a big lesson learned is, you know, take on the randomization, enjoy the randomization, think about a way to streamline the randomization. Um, another lesson learned is sometimes a rail is good. Sometimes it's good to, especially we're playing after work, right, Mike? Yep. So we have a couple hours after work before we're all tired and we want to go home and sleep. So, you know, introducing a bit of a rail, but letting characters you know, go wherever they want within those bounds. I guess a couple couple episodes ago, I said railings, not rails. That's probably what I mean. You know, we had guardrails, but not necessarily train tracks. And, uh, and, and that felt really good. It was a tighter session. It was a tighter investigation. You guys moved through the investigation quickly. You found the clues. You found the hag. That felt good. Um, any lessons about the 2020, the, 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 the double crit? Mike, is it, is it, again, let the dice fall where they may because, hey, this is not TV where every villain fight takes 15 minutes? I, I think the biggest lesson there is is don't be disingenuous when your players when when something unexpected happens right so so we had set it up as a house rule as we said and we were all committed to that and if your group commits to that that's fantastic but then don't 
don't cheese it up when it when it wrecks your plans because because your party will you'll see right through that yeah, and then finally you know steal steal as a gm do whatever cheat however you need to cheat as a gm during prep don't cheat with rolls <laughs> don't do that um but cheat during prep make prep as easy as you can because anything that's forcing you to be inside your own head while your players are talking it's a bad idea that's bad mojo because you really want to listen and respond to them because your role as a gm is to enable them um and and i knew that but learning this trick for what i could steal to make things easy i mean you guys don't know this um, but during, actually, Brian, this is for you. I know you're on mute. When you guys, when you two played Terror on the Kataro, I stole every officer aboard that ship from the Starship Enterprise. I renamed them. I renamed Picard and Riker. I, I, I renamed Worf. I renamed them all. And in fact, you guys didn't even get to meet all of them. That is the Enterprise E or Enterprise D. D, my friend. <laughs> the Enterprise is a Constitution class ship, sir. Okay, well, the Enterprise D, the Galaxy-class ship. But you guys didn't even meet all the NPCs. And I didn't try to shoehorn them in because, you know, I didn't care that you didn't talk to Worf. No big deal, right? I just had the complete confidence in listening to whatever you said and wherever it led me. Because if you wanted to talk to the chief of security, I knew exactly what his personality was like. I knew what his voice was like. And I was going to be ready to, quote-unquote, improv that at the drop of a freaking hat because I'd stolen a piece of, of, an, of another world to populate my world with. And because of that, I could listen to you guys and watch you and respond to you during that game. So steal, steal what you're familiar with. So, you know, family, friends, whatever, um, books, movies, TV. I keep saying it. I keep coming back to it. If there's anything I can add to the D&D conversation that I don't hear other people say, it's that. Steal to enrich your games, but more importantly, steal to give yourself the complete confidence that you can come up with anything at a moment's notice so that you stop thinking and listen to your players. Thank you for listening. People call them postmortems, evaluations, appraisals, reviews, retrospectives. We call them lessons learned, and we're sharing ours with you. <laughs>